0: It's June 23rd, 2019, and this is episode 402 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey, folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Ho. <laughs> Thanks to the hosts and to you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session again. The other host and I will be attending the Blockchain Training Conference this August 28th through 30th in Denver, Colorado. I'll have more details soon, but we're working on a live episode recording and want to do a listener meetup as well. If you'd like to learn more, visit blockchaintraining.org. On today's show, we were planning on talking about the apparent next generation of the ICO hubbub in the form of IEOs or initial exchange offerings. But earlier this week, we saw White Papers Drop providing quite a lot of detail on what we previously called the Facebooks Project, or Libra, as it's more formally known. In addition to today's discussion, Stephanie and I recorded the audio version of a section-by-section analysis of the Libra Protocol technical paper, originally written by longtime Bitcoin developer Jameson Lopp. We're releasing this as a bonus episode on our new LTB Show Only feed over at ltbshow.com if you're interested. The first time we really talked about Facebook was back on Let's Talk Bitcoin 392, entitled That's Not a Blockchain, That's a Series of Poor Engineering Decisions. That title was mostly focused on another coin we knew about, JPM coin. But it's also a fairly general statement about projects which seek to wrap themselves in the veneer of blockchain without accepting the ideology inherent to its function, if not its appeal. We'll link all the Libra white papers in the show notes for this episode, and there are four or five depending on what you call a white paper. But today we're going to dig for some of the core realities and assumptions underpinning Libra. We may not get to it all today as there is actually a decent amount to deal with. So first, I want to start off with the most basic question. Is Libra a real blockchain? And if so, what kind of blockchain is it?
1: Well, is it a real blockchain or not? Uh, I think the first thing we have to point out is that it is a white paper. Like, there hasn't really been, there's a testnet, there hasn't really been a deployment. And what actually survives first contact with Facebook lawyers and corporate headquarters and actually gets deployed may be very different from what's being built.
2: Oh, yeah. Don't
3: forget the regulators. Yeah, not even the regulators, congressional oversight.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Maxine Waters uh, jumped into the fray yesterday, as did the French finance minister, both saying that this is not an acceptable kind of activity for Facebook, for regulatory reasons, for monopoly reasons. Um, France said for sovereignty reasons. It's going to be a very interesting space. But what's in the actual paper? So... When I read, and, and I have to say that I've skimmed so far and looked at um, mostly the, the high-level stuff because it's only been out for a day, looking at this, I was actually impressed. Um, I was impressed by how close it comes to promoting a very progressive and aggressive view of what blockchains are, why they exist, and what they can achieve. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if this came out of the crypto space itself. In fact, it very much looks that way. It looks like they took 30 people, put them in a sandbox, incubator kind of environment, locked the door and just slid pizzas under the door for a year (laughs) until this white paper came out. Uh, And these are real fans of real crypto. They're not Facebook shills. So what they've done very effectively is they've cherry picked a whole bunch of very well-developed and advanced technologies, ideas, uh, protocols, and systems... from a bunch of different cryptocurrencies and open blockchains... and built something that they aim to make as decentralized as possible. Which is why I don't think a lot of it will survive first contact with Facebook HQ to deployment. But what they have done is, is rather interesting. A lot of ideas from Ethereum, uh, a lot of ideas from Bitcoin and a lot of ideas from various other blockchains.
2: But the point is that they say that initially this is going to be a federated blockchain or like a a proprietary blockchain, basically, that's going to transition later into being more decentralized. Initially, it's kind of controlled by the investors, which we're going to talk about more later. But the plan is to transition it to be controlled in more of a proof of stake
1: system. Yeah, the initial consensus algorithm is basically a Byzantine fault tolerance proof proof-of-authority algorithm that has a bunch of validators, which are vetted and pre-approved. And they act in a federated way, uh, using a randomness uh, generator to elect the validator for each round and produce a signed block. So in that way, it's ideas that you see in proof-of-authority chains that you can build with the Ethereum code base. The validators that are used in EOS or even Ripple, which also has federated validator nodes.
3: Well, I do think, though, that there is a a distinction with merit between Ripple and EOS. And that is the distinction between how you even become elected as a delegate to be in the pool with Ripple. Ripple says, oh, well, we're really decentralized because If you look, Bitcoin only has like five mining pools, but Ripple, we have 20 different validators. It just so happens that we, Ripple Inc., choose who that list of 20 are. And in EOS? I believe it's delegated by your stake. So it's the asset holders themselves who delegate who the block producer will be. And there's a list of block producers. Well, there's a voting mechanism. In fact, most recently,
1: one of the big New York validators was voted out and there was a big kind of Political hubbub about that in the EOS chain. But in any case, in this particular case, you have to pay Facebook 10 million to become a validator and be part of the association. And they've chosen a number of companies. So, from that perspective, it's similar to Ripple, only more expensive.
2: Yeah. You can't just invest in this. This is like another key difference. You have to be invited. And also, the minimum investment is like 10 million in a specific different crypto, right? There's like another token.
0: Yeah, you wind up buying an investment token. We're going to talk about that in a little while because I think that that's kind of the key to this whole thing. Yeah. So initially, just to again recap, what they say they're going to do is they're going to start off with these different companies of which they hope to have about 30, all of which will put a minimum of $10 million, which then gets turned into this token we'll discuss in a couple of minutes. And then they basically trade off in a Ripple style you know, as the leader gets handed off from each person to each person. And then the eventual goal Isn't a delegated proof of stake model, which is what EOS has, but it's a pure proof of stake model, which a delegated proof of stake means that if I don't have enough stake to actually be one of those validators and to make money like that, but I can choose to allocate the voting power basically or the staking power to a particular uh, representative. And then so in that way, it becomes almost kind of like a representative democracy where people can use their stake to vote for other people who actually, as a full time job, operate those nodes. So that's what EOS does. That's a delegated proof of stake. What's happening here or what they hope to grow into is is more of a true proof of stake model.
1: Which, which actually is also uh, very, very similar to what Ethereum is moving to.
0: Yes, it's very similar to what Ethereum is moving to. This seems to be the state of the art movement, you know. <laughs>
3: well, you know, just like Ethereum, Facebook's plan time horizon for switching to full proof of stake is five years out. Right. Always.
2: Right. So they're both basically hoping to solve the problems in the next five years (laughs) that they've encountered with proof of stake.
0: Well, that was definitely an interesting part of the uh, they released two sets of papers. One paper was kind of the high level stuff. I think it was an 11 page white paper that sort of covered all of the different sections. And then they released 20 to 45 page papers for each of the individual four or five sections. The simplified version said a lot of things that really made me think we were walking into a situation where we were just going to be making fun of how not a blockchain this is. Because it would say things like most blockchains involve blocks, whereas the Libra blockchain is a unified data structure. And so you get into the blockchain technical paper and it actually talks about that. And it says, oh, okay, well, actually, here's how we put together blocks forming transactions and stuff like that. And it's actually very similar. So on the inside, they've done their technical homework But on the outside, they're not really talking about a lot of the things that are just realities about cryptocurrency now, which they hope to change, but which require hard problems to be solved, which basically everybody's trying to solve.
1: Well, yes, but is it a blockchain? Yes and no. So there are blocks, but the primary state tree is actually very, very similar to Ethereum. Again, uh, a lot of ideas that are very similar to Ethereum. So it uses Patricia Merkle trees and binary Merkle trees and adds leaf notes to those Merkle trees in order to track the state of accounts. It's an account system, not a UTXO system, unlike Bitcoin. So again, like Ethereum. And it records transactions, not blocks themselves. The blocks are used for the consensus algorithm, from what I understood. So they use blocks to agree on the consensus of the chain. Uh, But then once they've agreed, they just record transactions directly chained together in in Merkle trees. So is it a blockchain? It is, yes. It is a blockchain. Is it an open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant, immutable, transparent, auditable, publicly verifiable blockchain? Mm, No. Uh, No to most of those. It's trying to be, though. And that's really interesting, is that They really want to make this as decentralized as they thought they could get away with. And the future plan is to make it even more decentralized in quite a few ways. But then again, I have serious doubts as to how much of that is going to survive first contact with either Facebook headquarters or the regulators. Already we're hearing that India has said that will not be allowed here.
2: Wow. And India actually has a huge amount of Facebook and WhatsApp users, because this is going to be based in like a wallet that goes in WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Yeah. That people can send and receive payments with. And um, there's like, I was reading about this today, there's like 270 million Facebook accounts in, in India. Yeah. So this is like one of their biggest user bases. So that's that's a pretty big blow. Well, I mean, but
1: it was predictable, right? And I, yesterday I said that one of the things that we're going to see immediately is this directly challenges the, me, the monetary power of of central banks. And the argument I got back uh, on Twitter was, what are you talking about? It uses a basket of currencies to back the asset. Therefore, it uses central banks. Well, so like, yeah, but that, that, that's fine if you're, if you're a U.S. dollar-based currency and you're not trying to devalue. But if you're running the rupee and you want to do a 20% devaluation uh, in order to you know, basically inflate the, de- the debt away or manage the, the, the currency exchange rate, then when you do that, that's not going to affect the basket. There's not going to be a lot of rupees in the basket. And they're not going to have a different basket for India. And what that means is the Libra suddenly looks like a currency to all of the users who have it on Facebook. And that causes a big problem right? That completely undermines their currency controls and capital flight issues, basically the way Bitcoin does. So they can't have that.
0: Right. It's exactly the same as, as cryptocurrency broadly is and as Bitcoin broadly is. The only difference is that instead of it being propagated effectively by a loose coalition of people who all think this is a good idea and are invested in it, you know, you're talking about Facebook and then a coalition of like 30 companies, all of which have put $10 million into this, as a way to get it initially seeded. And they only wind up making money off of this whole project if the system winds up becoming pervasive. And if that happens, they make a lot of money, which, as I mentioned, we'll talk about soon.
2: Yeah, and also there are some criticisms of proof of stake also from a decentralization perspective. So even if they do manage to transition to a purely proof of stake model, eventually, who is going to hold all the stake? It's going to be the initial investors. Like, they're going to have billions and billions of Facebooks, right? And then they're gonna give each user 50 Facebook cents for their social security number and all their information and say, oh, here you can use our platform. Here's some free money to get you started.
0: It's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. Like I said, I was pretty floored when I actually figured out what the point of this is because there is a very meaningful point. It has everything to do with money and almost nothing to do with cryptocurrency. It's just the vehicle that's getting us there.
1: Yeah. The other key thing to understand about this is while all of the code is open source and the wallet code is open source, one of the things that's likely to be an important block to the decentralization plan is that if the only way to uh, connect the wallet to the network is through one of the Facebook applications, WhatsApp, Instagram, Messenger, uh, or Facebook itself then effectively the open part of open access doesn't really exist because they're going to have to KYC users to do this. There's no question about that in my mind at least. I don't see any way that someone would be able or allowed to run the open source wallet and execute a transaction that hasn't been initiated by a known user who's provided identity verification documents.
3: It's also worth noting, it's not just that they're federated, um, but it's who their federates are. So included in that list are Visa and MasterCard. So there's what the technology will be capable of, and then there's that which the operators of the federates will allow. And I don't see a world where Visa and MasterCard will be an operator of a payment rail, which isn't going to be subject to the whims and fancies of Visa and MasterCard. At which point, how are we not just getting literally another way for Visa and MasterCard to give us the exact same product they already do?
0: Oh, I actually think that we are. We we are getting that exact same product. Mm, no, we're not. No, we're not? No, we're not. We're getting something worse. Um,
1: <laughs> what we're looking at here, in, in my mind, is the overlay of three different jurisdictional domains. You're going to have the overlay of every jurisdiction they operate in, right? Because this is a company that has to comply with local regulation. And they're going to push hard. That's one of the interesting things about this. When you get a company with 2 billion users and a trillion dollars, they can push the regulators in ways none of them have ever been pushed before. Some of these countries are going to go and operate in. Facebook is bigger than the country's GDP. So, you know, when you're a little country suddenly gets a visit from the Facebook lawyers and they your airport tarmac gets filled up with 17 Gulf Streams and they descend and tell you exactly how it's going to be, this is not going to be easy to fight. But in any case, One is going to be the jurisdictions of each of the areas they're in, um, and that's going to cause quite a bit of fragmentation. The second one is going to be the policies of the payment companies. Whether they're part of the validator framework or not, they're going to be part of the on-ramps and off-ramps, because you're going to need bank accounts in and out of this. So they're going to apply their regulations on that end at the edge, as well as as validators. And then you're going to have the policies of... Facebook, the advertiser-driven, puritanical, nipples are horrific, uh, can't have those on our platform, and uh, you know, maybe we'll also kick off some Nazis' policies of Facebook, the kind of no-due process, we make it up as we go along, policies that both the left and the right are outraged with on a daily basis. And so you're going to have the net sum of all of those, or if you like, the least common denominator. The range of expression that will be allowed here is going to be whatever squeezes out of the overlap between those three policies.
2: Which can always change based on popularity or outcome.
1: Yes, and so people will be subject to the policies of Facebook, as well as the policies of the bank, as well as the policies of their country. It's going to be very interesting because, of course, there's going to be a very hard push to to shift some of these policies. But this is not an open system by any, it's not a neutral system. It's not a censorship resistant system. The technology is, but what actually gets deployed, I don't really see any possibility of it being any of
0: those things. Okay, so let's hit a couple of quick main points. And then I want to get back to this discussion because with a little more context, I think this gets even more interesting. First off, let's talk about the token itself, the Libra token. Libra is supposed to be a reserve backed dollar peg token, which is set as the first, but not necessarily only, asset to launch on the Libra blockchain using the Libra protocol. In the technical white paper, they specifically say the database stores a ledger of programmable resources, such as Libra coins. Yeah, it's
1: important to understand that the way this operates on the inside is something that looks very similar to the Ethereum virtual machine. So it's a fully programmable, Turing complete smart contracts language. And the specification for the token, which is the the Libra token at first, as they said, actually contains all of the code necessary to be a multi-asset tokenized and smart contract driven platform. They can not only do Libra, they can do stable coins, they can do smart contracts,
0: they can do all of the other things that you see in a modern blockchain. And the interesting part about launching with a stablecoin is that you can use a stablecoin as a way to essentially collateralize. And back assets in this type of a situation. It has been hard to do historically because people haven't really trusted stablecoins. But this stablecoin has a lot of resources behind it, and maybe it does things different. So I think that if nothing else, that's an attempt that's happening here.
3: Well, the key problem with stablecoins has always been the trust in the reserve and the ability for the entity that's holding the reserve to remain banked and be audited. And so by having the Federates literally be Visa and MasterCard. I don't think Visa and MasterCard are going to get unbanked anytime soon.
1: This does create risks for um, Facebook operating in other countries, though. Or it, at least it places restrictions, because that means if the reserves are on the, for example, the U.S. banking system, there are very clear regulations about uh, you know, how you can use those, and the fact that you've converted them into a Libra token, that's not going to be untethered from the back end of the U.S. government's banking regulations. So, yeah, there won't be any Libra in Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and a whole host of other countries under sanctions, and that list can change at any time. And there won't be any Libra being sent to any people on any suspicious list. And if by accident that does happen, there will be consequences. So it's basically... A tokenized version of swift in many ways in in terms of the access it can have even more restricted than swift it's a
3: tokenized version of an american bank the funny thing to me about it is it most parallels ripple when ripple was trying to be a consumer product yeah and what happened was the regulators looked at ripple and said oh you're decentralized let's look at this fact pattern haha eighty percent of the network is just you you guys are centralized You're responsible for everything that happens in your network. And that's when they introduced KYC and then hard pivoted to interbank settlement rather than consumer focused settlement. And I don't know if, you know, four years is enough time for that level of uh, analysis in terms of needing to make a hard pivot from retail to interbank isn't still valid. And if uh, Facebook can actually execute on this versus realizing that maybe they just need to make a hard pivot to enterprise like Ripple did when they tried this.
0: Okay. So I want to talk about the reserve policy. But before we get to that, uh, let's talk about the primary or at least one of the apparent differences between the Ripple and the Facebook scenario. Uh, Notably, Facebook spun off a wholly owned subsidiary, which they've described as a regulated subsidiary called Calibra, which is the company that, as far as Facebook is concerned, is responsible for this. Beyond that, the biggest problem Ripple seems to have had is that they were directly responsible for actually picking the people who are going to be validators and in fact, operated some of them. Whereas in the Facebook case here or in the Calibra case, that's not really the way that they're doing it. There's sort of minimum participation requirements and then you're in, but ultimately this is going to launch with like 30 different large companies, all of whom are heavily invested participating as validators. So it'll be hard to make the argument and say, oh, this is all Facebook because Facebook itself isn't there at all. They have a subsidiary that's there, and it's going to play a one of 30 role once the network actually launches. In the lead up to it, it seems like it's more them than not. But that does seem like it's distinctly different and much more like Ethereum in terms of the fact pattern, right? Uh, Well, I think that very much depends on where the wallets live. Very much so.
1: That's the real power of Facebook here. It's bringing 2 billion user base to bear on this, and that gives them enormous actual power in controlling who gets to access, who gets to receive the coins, who gets to send the coins, and under what circumstances. Um, and with that will come certain responsibilities. It's a very interesting beast. And you know, from my perspective, reading all of this and seeing what they've built here, the whole crypto game just changed in, in a way everybody anticipated it would change, but I just think it changed in a way that none of us anticipated how big this was going to be. This is going to completely transform the space. And not in a good way. There are some good things that might happen out of this. Most of it is terrifying and and horrifying just because of the position of Facebook in the world and what they do with people's data. But, uh, you know, everything just changed.
2: Can we talk about the positives? I mean, maybe something like it's going to be huge exposure. It's
1: the AOL of crypto. This is the AOL moment, and as shitty as AOL was, it introduced and got billions of people or millions of people addicted to um, basic email and basic functions like that and
3: popularized the concept. And and just to remember what that moment felt like, uh, Andreas, you would know this better than I. Isn't there a day that like, they actually refer to it as like Black Tuesday or something? It was Black Monday, yeah. Where they dumped all of their users onto the
1: internet and dropped their wall garden because it wasn't working anymore and and opened it up. And basically, OL became an ISP. And the rest of the internet called that Black Monday or something like that, yeah.
3: Which was because for the growth of the internet and achieving mainstream adoption, it was amazing. But what it did was it introduced a whole bunch of people with none of the same values or ideas or interests into the industry. Yes. So
1: people who didn't understand what we then called netiquette, right? The culture of the early internet. And and that was one of the things we've been talking about for a long time now, which is mainstream adoption also means diluting the principles uh and the founding ideology. And and that's of course going to happen in this space too.
3: So very soon the people who are all listening to this and have been in the space for a while are going to be snotty, uh, uh, tea-drinking, pinky-lifting, cultured elites. (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) all of these Facebook coin ruffians (laughs) are going to sack the beautiful Rome that we've laid down. (laughs)
2: Leave my Rome alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you thought it was bad when Coinbase was onboarding all these new users when the price spiked up to 20000 a coin. That's nothing. You've not seen anything yet.
0: Well, it'll be interesting, certainly, to see what happens. I think that that was one of the big takeaways for me from this is just that I think that Coinbase probably has the most competition to this. And then as a secondary factor, if they really, really succeed, then governments have a problem. Yeah, let's talk about retail
1: banks and what's going to happen to them. I mean, to me, they're the ones who are going to be affected the most by this. This is the, the start gun of the race. And what it signals is the fact that the fangs are coming to take on retail banking in a way that's never happened before, retail finance. So Facebook is first. Don't be surprised. Amazon, Google, Netflix, Twitter, Uber, Airbnb even, perhaps, uh, can all get into banking. If Facebook proves that this could turn them from a trillion dollar company into a three trillion dollar company, because now they get to do financial services, Changes their fundamental ad-derived business model to be a transaction fee business model, which is much more lucrative, and puts them at the center of payments with a two billion user base. Retail banks are. F-ing. I mean, at this point, they they're going to get competition from the most technologically savvy, user interface savvy, dopamine receptor tickling company that has ever had a user base that they understand all of their interests and buying habits and reading habits intimately and have become masters at exploiting that information in order to push their opinions and decisions in certain patterns. So when they get into finance, retail banks cannot really compete in that space. And this is just the start, because if Facebook does it, here comes the rest of Silicon Valley. So this is something we've talked about for a while. This doesn't compete against open, borderless, censorship-resistant crypto, because it isn't any of those things. And it's not gonna serve the unbanked. They say in their paper, we're gonna serve the unbanked. They're not, because the problem is that what stands in the way of serving the unbanked is centralized regulation. They're not gonna be able to escape from centralized regulation. They might serve some of the unbanked, that's true. And that will be a good thing. That's one of the positive things that comes out of this. But they're not gonna serve All of the unbanked is certainly not going to serve most of the unbanked in some of the hotspots and countries under crisis, but they're certainly going to
0: take on retail banking in the developed world. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another Sponsored Minute.
4: Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, we're dedicated to contributing to Bitcoin development and the open source community. I'm part of a team of developers employed by Purse who don't even work on the Purse website we work on Bitcoin and other free and open source projects. Bitcoin is a JavaScript implementation of the Bitcoin protocol. After a quick installation, you can be up and running with your own full node or even an SPV wallet on your desktop or personal server. You can import a public key from your Trezor or ledger and use Bitcoin to watch your addresses and track your incoming payments while leaving your keys in cold storage. We also have a great application called bmultisig, which is a multi-signature wallet server designed for more advanced or enterprise users. Members can propose transactions and sign them with their own hardware devices at their convenience. A single user can use Multisig for a private, two-factor security model. At Bitcoin, we want everyone to have easy access to the best Bitcoin wallet tools. So if you're a developer with a great idea for a Bitcoin app, you should start building with Bitcoin.
0: To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit bcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub.
4: Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.
0: In the last segment, you mentioned that this is a more lucrative business potentially than the one that Facebook currently has in their social networking, sell a lot of advertising, monetize people's data in unethical ways model. I mentioned at the beginning of this recording that I was looking for kind of why this was happening because it didn't really make a lot of sense to me because this actually lacks fundamentally a speculative element. And Facebook has an advantage in terms of adoption. But that advantage in terms of adoption is only actually valuable if there's a speculative component to this, because otherwise they're just getting people to adopt something that doesn't benefit them. So, you know, as I dug more into the association details and the reserve policy, I I think I came across it. So Libra ostensibly is a dollar pegged token, and it's dollar pegged because it's backed by a bundle of assets. The money comes from users of Libra and investors in a separate investment token. So that means that users of Libra who put money in, that money, you know, you put in $100, you get back $100 worth of Libra. But the companies that are involved in the founding of this and that will play nodes are being required to put in $10 million. They're not buying equity. What they're actually getting back is $10 million or a minimum of $10 million worth of a token that will then bear dividends to them as this thing grows. Libra invests the reserves. And uh, the gains first go to operating expenses, then to investors in the investment token, end quote. In the event of world adoption, that's probably the most lucrative investment that one can possibly imagine. Reserves are held by a geographically distributed network of custodians with investment-grade credit rating to limit counterparty risk, which is what we talked about. And then the actual asset backing is bank deposits and government securities and currencies from, quote, stable and reputable central banks. So direct quote on the resiliency of the reserve The makeup of the reserve is designed to mitigate the likelihood and severity of these fluctuations, particularly in negative direction. To that end, the above basket has been structured with capital preservation liquidity in mind. Um, And they invest in debt from stable governments with low default probabilities, quote unquote, that are unlikely to experience high inflation. (laughs) This investment token, this investment token is the key to this whole thing. When you as a person put in your $100, you get back your $100 worth of uh, Libra, that $100 of real money that you put in goes into this reserve fund. You know you get the benefit of being able to use the Libra token, but you don't get any benefit from any of the interest that is being accrued by the reserves that you deposited to the system. So what that means is that initially the money that's being put in for these $10 million allocations is going to be used to seed the system. It's going to be used to give out $300 million, right? Something in that range worth of money. Uh, For free to get people to adopt this. And for them, it's great. And so that probably they hope will be enough to seed the system. But then what you eventually get is the system catches on. And then if the system catches on and you get, say, you know, a trillion dollars worth of value in it, you know, seeded by the initial investment, but eventually just because the system becomes pervasive, the more of the global economy that uses Libra the more money is made directly in terms of collecting interest off of the entire global economy because the entire global economy is using Libra. So, I mean, that's the big play here. And in some ways, I'm like, well, that's actually kind of brilliant. (laughs) It's brilliant, but it's not very original. No, it's, it's not original, but the way it's being deployed with the people who are pushing it, the people who are participating, I think that for the first time, We actually have something that looks like a cryptocurrency that would actually disrupt in a meaningful way that is supported by enough of maybe not the status quo in terms of governments, but the status quo in terms of corporate power. Maybe this is a way that cryptocurrency really breaks through. And it only, of course, happens because all the incentives are set up that they want this thing to really work, right? to really be functional as a global financial system, because by doing so, if they actually solve that problem and win, then this is the biggest windfall that I think we've ever seen in human history. It sounds like the
1: investment mechanism they're using sounds very, very much like CDOs.
2: What's a CDO?
1: So CDOs, collateralized debt obligations were what brought the economy to its knees in 2008. They were basically the idea of creating synthetic investment vehicles that had um, investment in in cash producing assets, primarily in the real estate market, mortgages that were bundled in tranches and had triple A ratings, very very stable and safe investments, as uh, Adam just read from the white paper, that were bundled together. Now, what they did with these CDOs was they rated the whole ball as triple A, but what was in it wasn't triple A. It was a mixture of various grades of investment producing by mixing a triple A rated investment that in fact wasn't. This was what AIG did backing these with insurance. And then when the real estate market crashed, a lot of the things that were in there turned to junk and it took down Lehman Brothers.
3: But Andreas, you're not you're not seeing the, the how this the beauty of it you see, because government bonds are risk-free. They're not just triple A. They're the legal <laughs> definition of being entirely without risk and what facebook has will potentially be billions of billions of dollars of municipal debt purchasing power oh you're a senator who's against my bill hey why don't i buy a couple hundred million of your muni bonds oh hey congressman <laughs> oh there's a there's a senator from a particular province in india oh let's how many muni bonds do we need to include in our basket for you to give us the regulatory approval we need
1: right which is the other reference that I've seen pop up a lot, and I think it makes a lot of sense, which is, if you look at this, it looks also very similar to the IMF's SDR mechanism. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, which is basically a private entity, has reserves in the hundreds of billions of dollars that are a basket of foreign currencies, various US dollars as well as various other currencies, and they give member states that have contributed to the fund um, what are called special drawing rights, which are tokens. They're tokens that are backed by the reserves in the IMF. And then they can use those to do basically leverage lending and come into a country and give them massive loans as long as they follow certain austerity programs to pay the IMF back. They're the lender of last resort for states, and they come into places like Argentina, and they asset-strip the country while giving them these very, very predatory loans.
3: They're what the Iron Bank was based off of for Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah. So this makes Facebook look like a kind of neo-IMF, like a, a new model for an IMF that is actually based on consumer or retail banking with reserves built up by consumers, but which will give them the ability to do things very similar to what the IMF does. I mean, if I'm a central banker, or if I'm a government politician, or someone who works in the finance ministry of, say, France or India, I look at this and go, dear God, at some point Facebook will be able to come in, not only buy up our bonds, but then hold us over a barrel, and dictate to small countries until eventually it can dictate to medium countries and then large countries so one way to look at this is this really feels very much like the cyberpunk neo-feudal dystopia of Neal Stephenson or Cory Doctorow it really does uh, it's the corporation that becomes bigger than a superstate
3: To that end, my favorite book about this topic is called Jennifer Government. Yes. And it takes place in a world where you are known by the company you work for. And there's a woman who's trying to stop a ball of companies from killing people called Jennifer, who works for the government.
1: Isn't she married to someone like John Comcast or something (laughs)
3: like that? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's John Nike. (laughs) Yeah. But at the end of it, you realize what made our world today turn into their world was loyalty rewards points. And that loyalty (laughs) rewards points allowed corporations in entirely different vertical to collude in a value alignment framework against other corporations. And then they created these supranational countries on the basis of this loyalty rewards point. And I think maybe, just maybe, that's Facebook coin.
1: Yeah. it's In some ways, it's a terrifying vision of neo-feudalism, where everyone becomes a landless serf that operates within a financial framework of coin minted by the local aristocrats, or in this case, by the global aristocrats.
0: So we're talking about this in the context of Facebook. But again, I think what we're really talking about here is this supranational example of what Jonathan's talking about is the Libra Association. The Libra Association is set to be a... I'm not sure if it exists yet. It might exist, or might still be in kind of the ideation stage. But it's... Is or going to be a Swiss not-for-profit made up of, quote, global companies, social impact partners, and academic institutions. They hope to have the association itself eventually become an open stake-based validator network because right now the association is also tied in with that. Initially responsible for recruiting validator nodes, selling the Libra investment tokens to raise funds, design and implement an incentive program, including those impacting founding members and the distribution of dividends to Libra investment token investors it's governed by the libra association council comprised of a representative from each association member so you'll basically have one you know rep from all these different corporations showing up for these meetings operating and policy decisions on the council require different voting thresholds depending on the importance of the decision and they have the ability to influence fundamental like network propagation rules right like they can vote to change basically the incentive program right the how do you actually distribute this token they can do that here They're also the only ones that are allowed to create and destroy the token. And they only do that through um, sort of uh, B2B type relationships with existing exchanges or other large types of companies. So as a system, again, like we're talking about this like it's Facebook because this has been the Facebook coin project. But they really do seem to be trying to make this about a supranational corporate cabal, right? (laughs) I, I, the,
1: no. Here's the thing. We're t- Again, we're talking about the validators and, and shareholders of this thing. We're not talking about the fundamental source of the power of this thing, which is the economic activity of the user base. If the user base comes from the 2 billion users of Facebook and the wallet is managed by Facebook, they have all of the power. They get all of the data and they are able to direct all of the buying power of that enormous economy, it's really simple. Facebook's ultimate business is to monetize content. And if you turn money into content, you can monetize money better than any other thing. (laughs) They just figured out how to monetize money for 2 billion people. When I read these two papers, what I'm thinking is, on the one hand, you have this beautiful kind of technological idealism of, of scientists who are working on this project with all of the influences of the open blockchain movement who know their tech and did their research and built a beautiful structure. What brings to mind is the scientists who are working on the energy core and they don't know that that energy core is going to get installed in the Death Star. Uh, and this is going to get installed in the Death Star, the most horrific surveillance capitalism company that has ever existed and they're going to control the economic activity of their users. So we don't know where this is going to go politically. The the technology itself is interesting and elegant, and it's based on the same principles as many of the principles of the blockchain. Of course, it's not as decentralized as any of the really open public leaderless systems that have been built from Bitcoin onward, but... It's trying, it's trying to go in that direction. The, the, the vision of the scientists is clearly visible in that paper, but that's not what's going to happen with this. What's going to happen with this is now it gets thrown into this new political status. Yesterday, I talked about this and I described it as a three body problem until yesterday. This was primarily a battle between money of the people and money of the state. And As much as you think this is status quo, it isn't. This is introducing a completely new angle, which is corporate money. This isn't a cryptocurrency, it's a corporate currency. It's the world's first corporate currency. Or maybe not the world's first. It takes us back to the Medici. It takes us back to the East India Company. It takes us back to a time when corporate currencies were thriving, and they were used to colonize and enslave millions. Here's the thing, until yesterday, the two fundamental forces were state money and people money, and they were battling against each other. Now we're gonna have this three-body problem where you have corporate money, state money, and people money. And it's a multi-dimensional equation that's impossible to solve because the influences are very, very complicated. The political push and pull between these three different bodies In some places, corporate currency and state currency are going to work together against cryptocurrency. In other places, corporate currency and people's currency are going to work against the state. For example, in eroding the power of central banks, eroding the sovereignty of nation states to take their users hostage to hyperinflation adventures, and even in pushing back against the regulatory framework and disrupting regulation itself. By forcing regulators to confront the fact that that regulatory system doesn't work.
3: That's been a conversation that's been occurring for months and months, which was like, as an industry, we need a regulatory actor to come forward and try to fight the battle. But it's also, you need the regulator to be willing to take a fight with a fact pattern that isn't a horrible scam, but is actually something that could win on the merits in the way you'd like. And... The funny thing is that Facebook has a fact pattern a regulator would never want to go against, but because they're so large, it's forcing the issue of them to be the target of the regulatory scrutiny. So we may be in a scenario where they may get substantively superior regulatory outcomes than any other actor who could have tried to fight the regulators.
1: And even the banks, superior even to the banks. They're bigger
3: than any global bank. But the scary thing is the conversations we had in 2013 and 2014 with Ripple, we were concerned that Ripple was going to regulators and saying, this is really what you want a blockchain to look like. Those other things you should really regulate out. And the concern here is, you know, is Facebook going to win the regulatory battle, but then pull the ladder up behind it to kick us all out? Or do we even want to live in a world where they win and then we get our 1984 Chinese social credit financial system?
1: Well, more importantly, they can't push out old and truly decentralized cryptocurrencies because those are not tied into the regulatory system. They can push them underground, but they can't push them out. So what, what happens next, I think, is really interesting. We talked about scenarios where people's money and corporation money work against the state. We talked about scenarios where corporation money and state money work against the people's money. But what we haven't talked about is the fact that in one particular angle, one particular battle, the open people's cryptocurrency is standing alone. And that is against financial surveillance, because both state money and corporate money are 100% invested in totalitarian surveillance, which means that privacy is the last readout. It's the absolutely last stand is in open public censorship resistant decentralized cryptocurrencies, money of the people. That's where we take our stand. Now it's all about privacy because the the nation-states are not on our side in that particular game. And Facebook certainly isn't. They monetize surveillance. So that means that privacy will only exist in the people's money. The game has changed entirely. And I think it's a time for a lot of the projects in this space to clarify their principles. If your principle is, we're going to play KYC AML, we're going to sell out our users to surveillance so that we can get fast, efficient, well-regulated and broadly accepted payment systems, you cannot win that game because you're now playing against the biggest player in the market and they know how to do that better than anyone. If your goal is to shed principles, you're now facing the one corporation that has fine-tuned their principle-shedding machine uh, <laughs> to, to make it incredibly efficient. They had very few principles to start with. You can't win that game. so Principles are the main differentiator now. Only if you believe in privacy uh, and if you are fighting against surveillance, can you really compete against this and differentiate against this. They're going to do it so that it's cheaper, it's faster, and it's more convenient. And they're going to do that at the expense of everybody's privacy and ultimately at the expense of any kind of democratic institution that tries to get in their way.
0: So we're talking about everything with regards to Facebook in the context of this being an additional business model that they're trying to bootstrap on top of. But I think there's also an argument to be made that perhaps this is a transitional business model and that it's a way to take their existing dominance in the social media sector, which may or may not continue based on how things go over the next number of years and pivoted into an entirely different business model that gets them out of the content business entirely, and just puts them in the we kickstarted the infrastructure, and we invested half a billion dollars when we had it, you know, into this thing. And so that's congratulations, our money for the rest of the time.
1: Well, uh, that's an interesting question. The next topic to discuss is, you know, to follow up on what I was saying about how we differentiate, right? What is the differentiation point against this behemoth? The other interesting question is, how does Facebook differentiate against Google and vice versa? How does Facebook differentiate against amazon If Amazon gets into this game, they're bringing the largest retail infrastructure in the world, and that's going to compete very, very directly against Zuckbox. so maybe Google is going to be doing an ai focused crypto to leverage their leads in AI. who the hell knows but What's interesting is to try to think now about how these various tech companies are going to differentiate against each other, not just against the nation state money or the people's money.
2: Well, interestingly, we've kind of talked about this before, but Amazon is already kind of dipping their foot into the the whole company script thing where they have their affiliate program and they have virtual assistants at different places around the world and they get paid with Amazon credit, basically. We talked about this in relation to Purse, which was providing the service of you can do a gift exchange and get Bitcoin that way by buying something for somebody on Amazon off their wish list. And there's a lot of people who have Amazon credit around the world, and they're looking for ways to convert it into something else. And, uh, you know, Amazon has their reward points. They have also started getting into it with their acquisition of Whole Foods, Where, you know, there's like Amazon credit cards where you can get 5% back at Whole Foods and Amazon and then you're paid back at Amazon Points, which you then spend at Amazon. So they're already in this game a little bit.
1: Oh, they're in this game a lot. I can tell you as an author who publishes on Amazon and uses their Amazon affiliate program because they have the best distribution mechanism for books and no one can compete in that. My Amazon gift card credit, if you like, for my affiliate work, rivals some of the bank accounts I had in the past. and So effectively, Amazon is already my bank. I have a balance there, and it's a significant balance. It's not like five bucks. So from that perspective, they're already very much in that game. And anybody who's on the marketplace, anybody who's acting as an affiliate or in the marketplace, or is a vendor, probably has very significant Amazon credit on there.
2: By the way, you can get Andreas's books <laughs> and Andreas's audiobooks narrated by me on Amazon.com.
0: <laughs> we'll link in the show
1: notes. Well, you've got to think about like, how often do you get, um, so it's, for a publisher, actually, it's not its not even just the affiliates, it's also refunds and credits, right? So if someone returns a book or a product that you've sold, it's actually much more cost effective to take it as a credit instead of trying to put it back on your bank account because you can use it immediately. So a lot of people end up doing that and they build up quite significant credit. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. And, and what happens then is they save on credit card fees because next time I go in to buy you know, a USB cable from Amazon, I don't buy it with a credit card anymore. I buy it with some of the Amazon credit that I've built up in my company. And so no credit card fees in, no credit card fees out. They basically cut out the credit cards and they've built a closed system already. It's really a fascinating environment. Now, Google does that, of course, with Google Pay. Apple does that with Apple Pay. And they also have significant internal credits and balances on these systems. So they're already into banking. But again, how do they differentiate? How do they become more than just a retail bank?
2: Is there any way this is good if it takes Facebook out of the business of monetizing our data, even a little bit? Is that potentially good?
0: Because it matters if you use Facebook.
2: (laughs) Well, right. That's true. And as you mentioned, Adam, they're they're losing ground with the social media adoption, right? Now it's like your parents are on Facebook. Well, in
1: developed countries, that's true. But in developing countries, that's not true. Like in places like the Philippines, India, most of Southeast Asia, most of sub-Saharan Africa that's growing tremendously in South America, Facebook is the center of the internet. It's not your parents. Uh, It's everybody using Messenger and WhatsApp. And keep in mind, Facebook isn't just Facebook. We keep forgetting. Instagram is humongous among young people, right? Uh, I'm not on that, but uh, apparently everybody else is, uh, including about two dozen impersonators of my account. But here's the interesting thing. One of the real effects of their current business model is that they reflect onto user policy the morality of advertisers, the kind of bland, corporate, puritanical morality of the advertisers. Because their revenue model is very much driven by content and advertising, uh, they have to reflect that back. So if certain pages or certain user interactions have unspeakable horrors like female nipples, um, then advertisers shy away from that because they apply that kind of weird morality.
2: I always have trouble telling if it's a female nipple or a male nipple. It's funny, you know, (laughs) if you just see the nipple.
1: Well, they actually tried to build AI to figure that out on Tumblr and it backfired. (laughs)
2: Hot dog, not hot dog. (laughs) Did you guys see that Silicon Valley episode?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, the best part was when the Tumblr AI that they built to do that actually blocked the Tumblr corporate advertising about the AI that they built, thinking that it (laughs) contains unspeakable images. It's recursive, right? But what I'm saying is, like, advertisers are the tail that wags the dog, right? They inject all of that corporate morality or weird morality or puritanism And to people on the right of the political spectrum, this results in deplatforming of right-wing voices from the mild all the way to the far-right neo-Nazi white supremacists. To the left side of the spectrum, this looks like deplatforming of LGBTQ people, trans people, various uh, sex-positive perspectives, nudity. And of course, sex workers, right? And cannabis and a whole bunch of other things that the right wing finds objectionable. Whether you're on the left or you're on the right, some advertiser is going to apply their puritanic morality and deplatform someone you are interested in seeing their opinion. And Facebook becomes the least common denominator of their least puritanical advertiser, if you see what I mean. Now, What happens when their model becomes monetization of user content and transactions instead of advertising? That changes that completely. That's a very big change. Then we maybe get to see what Facebook's real morality is. Not the reflected morality of the advertisers, but their corporate morality. Which may be better, may be worse. Who the hell knows? Nobody elected them, that's for sure. and That's one of the problems. We talk about this concept of code as law. And Some people think that that means that code is above law, but instead I look at it as additive. When we operate in these virtual spaces, just like the original Code is Law by Lawrence Lessig, when we operate in these virtual spaces, we operate under the policies and terms and conditions of these corporate private spaces. and Those policies and terms and conditions are encoded in software, and that software becomes the law of that particular space. And it's not instead of your local law. It's in addition to your local law. And it's often a further restriction than your local law. So you get your local law and customs plus the further restriction of Facebook policy in terms and conditions. That's a very weird space to be. For a financial institution, that's going to create some
0: really difficult dilemmas. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Thugs, and was edited by Stephen and Adam. Enjoying the Let's Talk Bitcoin show? You can now subscribe for free to the brand new trouble-free LTB Show only podcast RSS feed by visiting ltbshow.com and picking your favorite service. Longtime listener, we've got more than 400 episodes under our belt, but almost no reviews on these new feeds. You can help out the show by leaving a review on your favorite platform and helping new listeners find us. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.